Thank you, Josh. Choir, orchestra for leading us in worship through song. If you would turn in your Bible to John, we'll complete the prologue today, looking at verses 14 to 18, and then we're going to observe the Lord's table this morning. Again, I want to thank you for your sacrificial giving to Lottie Moon. It has such a multiplying effect. I mean, Lakeview is such a strategic church situated here on a major campus, college campus. And so many of the college students come here and they have no vision for the nations. They have no vision for sacrificial giving to the nations. And they come here on a rotation of every four years and they leave completely changed. And so not only are you impacting the nations uh, with your sacrificial giving, but you're serving as an example and a, and a game changer uh, to these many students who come through here through the years. And so it changed me. It changed Heather and me. And we're so very grateful for that. And you continue year after year to give sacrificially uh, to Lottie Moon. And we are so grateful for that. Well, if you would look with me. In verse 14 of John chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he. Of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side he has made him known. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious passage, this glorious prologue, this glorious gospel that we have. And we just pray today as we complete this prologue that you would, in your son Jesus Christ, and by the spirit of Christ, and by the preaching of your word, revive our souls, make wise the simple, rejoice our hearts, and enlighten our eyes to behold your glory in the face of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, it's a wonderful life. One of the great Christmas movies uh, that all of us have seen, perhaps. It premiered 75 years ago tomorrow, uh, December the 20th, 1946. And for those of you who have seen this movie, and most of you have seen it numerous times, the hero, hero of that movie is, is George Bailey. Now, George was a, an outstanding citizen from his youth. He, he saved people, um, saved their lives, and he was loved by everyone in his town of Bedford Falls. Um, but even though he had this great love, everyone loved and respected him, he was tired of Bedford Falls. He wanted to leave this sleepy old town. 
and pursue what he perceived to be true greatness. Instead, he's forced to squander his potential, at least that was his perspective, by taking over the family business, the broken down building and loan. Or it's going to fall into the hands of the oppressive banker uh, and overlord of Bedford Falls, Mr. Potter. Well, things look up uh, for George when he marries the girl who has always loved him, Mary Hatch. And they have children, and he slowly uh, nurtures uh, his family business back to health. It begins to be very successful, and he is able to help many people in the town, help them buy homes so they don't have to deal with uh, Mr. Potter. But George is never satisfied. He's never content. In fact, there's a telling conversation he has with his pop that many viewers through the generations can resonate with. Perhaps you can resonate with this. He says this to his pop, I couldn't face being cooped up for the rest of my life in a shabby little office. I want to do something big, something important. Now, this movie, this story, has connected with people for 75 years because at least two assumptions are found in George Bailey's thinking that we see, perhaps, in ourselves. First of all, George assumes that significance in this life is found resides somewhere else rather than where he presently resides. Secondly, and once he finds it, he'll become a satisfied, contented person. Uh, He'll no longer be restless. He will find significance. Now keep in mind, we tend to be in awe of what we are convinced will give us life. Whatever it is we think will give us life, meaning and purpose and significance and worth, that is the thing that we tend to be in awe of. That's how God has hardwired our hearts. And so, misplaced awe, misplaced identity is very dangerous. Misplaced identity will leave you with a vacuum. And you will seek to find your identity, significance, and worth horizontally rather than vertically. We develop identity amnesia. And if these ideas that were in George Bailey's head and is often in our heads are balloons then John's prologue, indeed the gospel of John, is a needle meant to pop them. That's what John is doing. What we've seen from the very beginning of John, John 1 verse 1, from there, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is everything we need for life and godliness. Every true blessing is mediated through him. Every true blessing is mediated through the mediator, the Son of God. He is our creator. 
addressing our problem with meism. That's our default setting, meism. We make everything about us. We think the world is centered on us. We are self-sovereigns. He is our creator addressing our meism. He is the word of God for us addressing our spiritual ignorance about ultimate things and important things. He is our very life overcoming our alienation from the life of God. And he is our light overcoming the darkness that is epidemic in all of our hearts. The Gospel of John has as its goal to awaken us to the glory of the Son of God. Proverbs 16, 15 says, In the light of the king's face there is life. And John is giving us the king's face before our very eyes. In the light of the king's face there is life. The gospel of John is intended to restore our awe. It's on an awe-rescue mission that our awe might be in the one that we were created for. That brings us to the first part of this passage. And starting in verse 14, we see the glory of the Son of God's incarnation. Look with me in verse 14. He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this is the most concise verse in the Bible on the incarnation. Now, maybe some of you are here today and you don't know what that term incarnation means. Literally, it means in the flesh. It comes from a Latin word, which means in the flesh. The, the incarnation is the miraculous act of God affected by the Holy Spirit whereby the, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity, took in union with himself a complete human nature apart from sin. That's what we mean when we speak about the incarnation. Or perhaps you've even heard the term hypostatic union. That's what we are referring to. In other words, the Son of God didn't come into being at the incarnation. He became a human being in addition to being a divine being. And so in the incarnation, God and humanity are joined in one person, never again to be separated. That's the glory of the incarnation. The Word who eternally exists and is the creator of all that exists and is alone worthy of our worship, became flesh. I love R.G. Lee's statement on the incarnation. I think it's the most colorful and beautiful statement I've ever read, apart from Scripture itself, on the incarnation, R.G. Lee being the former pastor at Bellevue uh, in Memphis. He said, from the heights of glory to the depths of shame, from the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth, from exaltation to humiliation, from the throne to the tree, from dignity to abasement, 
from worship to wrath, from the halls of heaven to the nails of earth, from the coronation to the curse, from the glory place to the gory place. In Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined. Born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes of poverty. No room for him who made all rooms. No place for him who made and knows all places. Oh, deep humiliation of the creator, born of the creature, woman. But in his descent was the dawn of mercy. Because we cannot ascend to him. He ascends or descends to us. Indeed, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, this verb, dwelt, is an interesting word. You could literally translate that word tabernacle. Uh, The word of God became flesh and tabernacled among us. And for Jews, this would have recalled the exodus. Of course, we know from the book of Exodus that they were given um, instructions on how to build the, the tabernacle. And then they built the tabernacle, led by this man named Bezalel from the tribe of Judah. He was given wisdom, knowledge, and understanding in the Spirit of the Lord. And they built that tabernacle. And in Exodus chapter 40, upon completion, it says that the glory of the Lord so filled the tabernacle that Moses could not even enter the tabernacle. Uh, Donald McLeod says the sun is the glory made visible. Isn't that beautiful? That glory that was in that tabernacle, so thick and so glorious, Moses could not even enter that sun. The Son of God is the glory made visible. Not a different glory from the Father's, but the same glory in another form. The Father is the glory hidden. The Son is the glory revealed. That's the glory of the incarnation. In other words, all that God is and all that enables him to be known in truth is found in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, importantly... In response to Israel's apostasy, and we can see this in Ezekiel 10, verses 1 to 22, it says that the Shekinah glory left the temple. The Shekinah glory, that is the the revelatory presence of God. Now, God is omnipresent. He is at all places at all times. But there's a unique revelatory presence of God that we call His Shekinah glory, His Shekinah presence. And it departed from the temple, and we read about that in Ezekiel 10, and it never came back. Even when the the, um, Jews came back from Babylon and rebuilt the temple, led by Haggai and Zechariah and and Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, the glory did not return. So what John is telling us here, that glory has now returned in the incarnation of God the Son of God. And note how he says it. We have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father. It's the same idea that Hebrews 1 says when it says he is the radiance 
of the glory of God. Now, John adds that this glory was expressed in the Word or through the Word in that he was full of grace and truth. I love that. Full of grace and truth. Now, grace is one of the most important words uh, that we find in Scripture. It's found four times in this prologue, uh, verses 1 to 18, and it signifies goodwill. It it signifies uh, kindness. Of course, you've heard this acronym. Many of you have heard this. uh, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's often uh, been uh, an anachronism to describe an, uh, what grace is. And I think that's a beautiful exp- um, definition of what grace is. Because it's God's goodness, God's benevolence to us, but it comes at a cost. It came at the cost of the Son of God. And, and there's nothing that, that captivates a, a sinner who is aware of his or her sin more than grace. When this grace is given, the one who's giving it is absorbing the debt for the sake of the receiver. Just think about it at the, in the physical level. When someone gives to you something that is, that is very sacrificial on their part, and it meets a need in your life, it completely changes you, doesn't it? it your, your disposition towards that person changes immediately because you are aware of, of your need for grace, and you are aware that that person paid a price in order for you to receive that grace. But with this grace, John connects the word truth. He was full of grace and truth. Now, this is an important word for John. It's found 25 times in the Gospel of John. For instance, in John 14, I am, Jesus said, the way, the truth, and the life. Now, think about this. The reason grace and truth travel together here is because there's a way of giving grace to someone where you impugn who you are as a person. You can compromise yourself as a person. But God's gospel was given to us in such a way, God's grace in Jesus Christ was given to us in such a way where he did not in any way compromise who he is as holy and righteous. He is able to save sinners like us who deserve judgment and remain true to who he is as holy and righteous. That's what John is referring to there with the word truth. By judging our sin through the substitute. And that's why John would say he was full of grace and truth. Now most scholars believe that John is picking up language from Exodus 34. Now we looked at Exodus 34 this summer. But it's a very important passage because in Exodus 34, Moses has asked God, show me your ways, show me your glory. And the Lord responds by preaching a sermon about himself. And in Exodus 34, the Lord says, the Lord, the Lord, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, those two terms can be translated grace and truth. And you see those two terms travel together numerous times in the Old Testament. That tells us that's a very important concept. For instance, in Proverbs 16, 6, by steadfast love and faithfulness, or you could say, by grace and truth, iniquity is atoned for. Think about that. 
by grace and by truth. In other words, God can atone for our iniquity in such a way where he can be gracious to us and yet remain true to who he is. How about this one? Psalm 25, verse 10. All the paths of the Lord. All the paths of the Lord. Even the paths you're on that are oftentimes disappointing and painful as a believer. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Are grace and truth. Now that is beautiful language. And John is saying... Those paths lead us to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We may be full of sin, but he's full of grace. We may be full of deceit and ignorance. He is full of truth. And that is what motivates, I believe, these words that we see in verse 15 from John the Baptist. Notice in verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now think about this. John the Baptist's ministry preceded Jesus's. John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus. And here he says, He ranks before me. He came before me. I believe this is kind of preparing us for Jesus' words in John 8, 58, when he tells the Jews, before Abraham was, I am. Now, it's just interesting language. Um, Now, John the Baptist is one of the most important figures in uh, in January, we're going to pick up verse 19, and we'll, we'll deal with the John the Baptist narrative there. But just suffice to say here, he's one of the most significant figures in the New Testament. Do you realize he's mentioned 89 times in the New Testament? 89 times. And, and so John the Baptist connected the Old Testament and the New Testament like a redemptive bridge. That's why he's so important. He was the last Old Testament prophet. And he was the first to speak about the one who has come in the flesh and ushering in the kingdom of God. But as great as he was, he insists here in verse 15, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now why did John the Baptist preach this? There were a lot of things he could have said, and he certainly did say other things. But why does it say this here? Because the Son of God, as the eternal creator Lord, stands over us, and we are accountable to him. We were created for him. The incarnation reminds us we were created for him. We owe all allegiance. We owe all worship. We owe all adoration to him. Keep in mind, worship is our identity as humans. No matter if you're a committed believer or an ardent atheist, you will worship something or someone. Worship is our identity, and we are designed for worship, and in particular, our creator, God in Jesus Christ. 
And this involves devotion. It involves obedience. It, it involves repentance. It involves trust. It involves service to him. He is worthy of this because of the glory of the incarnation, but also because of the glory of his provision. Look with me in verse 16. Someone asked me recently, what is your favorite verse in the Bible? That is hard to say. I've got a bunch of them, and I know you do too. One of my favorite verses is verse 16. I don't have any tattoos on my body, but maybe if I got a tattoo, I'd put verse 16 here on my tattoo. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Amen? I need to repeat that because I don't think we heard it. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The Son of God has a fullness of every spiritual blessing we need. Everything we need, there's a fullness awaiting us. Which implies that apart from Him, we are empty. We are empty. There's a fullness of cleansing power in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does John tell us? For the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. There is a fullness of pardon in him. Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. No matter what sin you've ever committed or presently are committing, if you will repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. There is a fullness of victory in his death. For by his death, he rendered powerless the one who has power over death. That is the devil. And as we saw last week, for those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. In other words, we receive his fullness as sons and daughters of God, which John says is grace upon grace. Literally, let's translate this, grace in the place of grace. That's how you would literally translate that phrase. Grace in in the place of grace. In other words, never-ending provision. Never-ending provision for every Christian. Never-ending provision of grace. In other words, when one grace has been given, there's another grace there to take its place in Jesus Christ. That's what John is saying here. And when you understand your need for grace, and let me just say this, God loves us too much to keep us in the dark on that. He'll always be revealing to you your need for grace. And when you understand your need for this grace, faith becomes nothing less than a grace addiction. That's what it is, a grace addiction. John is laying out this grace Something that living merely by the law could never do for us. It's, it's interesting how often you'll, you'll evangelize someone and if they're not a Christian, you will hear some law come out. You'll hear it. It's just the natural pagan religion. But the law can never do for us what the grace of Christ can do. Notice in verse 17. For the law was given... Through Moses, grace and truth came 
through Jesus Christ. Now, the, the contrast between law and grace is not that the law was bad. The law is good. The law is good because it reveals the character of God. It, it gives us God's standard, which is a good standard. The law is not burdensome. The law is good, but the contrast here is not that the law was bad and Jesus is good. But the law had a particular purpose. It functioned like a mirror. The law was intended to show us how ugly our hearts are. That's what the law was intended to do. And consequently, the law condemns us all. Because the law shows us all how, fall, how short we fall of the glory of God. I love these words from Augustine, or some would say Augustine. And it's interesting, being on a seminary campus for 19 years, they still haven't figured it out up there. Um, so I call him Augustine. Some people say tomato, some say tomato. But Augustine said, the law threatened, but did not bring aid. Commanded, but did not heal. Made manifest, but did not take away our feebleness. As John Bunyan quipped, and I'm sure some of you have heard this, run, John, run. The law commands. It gives me neither feet nor hands. A different word the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. That's what John is telling us here. A.W. Pink, the law sentenced a living man to death. Grace brings a dead man to life. And this grace in the Son of God incarnate images the very life of God himself. And that brings us to the final point here. The glory of the Son of God's revelation. Notice with me in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. Now, John here is echoing Exodus 33 where God says to Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Of course, God graciously allowed Moses to see his back, but he could not see him face to face. I think that's what he's referring to here. No one has ever seen God. So Moses is allowed to experience some of God's self-revelation, but he's not permitted to experience an unlimited uh, revelation of God because it would have been fatal to Moses. It would be fatal to us. No one has ever seen God, but get this, the only God who is at the Father's side. Don't miss that. He just called the Son of God God here, but he's distinct from the Father. He's equal to the Father in essence and power and glory, but he's distinct the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. In other words, if you've seen me, Jesus said, you have seen the Father. Here's the point. The reason for our inability to see God is twofold. First of all, God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. We learned that in catechism class, right, with our children. But secondly, we're sinners And because of this sin, 
Sin breaks all relations with God. We are naturally alienated and separated from the life of God. Here's the point. The Son of God overcomes both obstacles. The Son of God comes in human flesh. He himself is God and became a man so that we could see God. In fact, this word made him known. Look at that word, that verb. He has made him known. This is where we get the term exegesis. Some of you know what that word means because you've sat under Brother Al's preaching for 40 years. Um, exegesis is just pulling out what's there in the text. All right? It, it's, it's exegeting a text so that you understand that text. The Son of God exegetes the Father. So that when you see the Son of God, you see who the Father is. That's what John is saying in this passage. And, and this brings us to the most important reason that the Son of God tabernacled among us. So that we might be reconciled to the Father. He tabernacled among us so that he could make atonement. Now, I want you to think just briefly, and we'll be brief here, the purposes of the tabernacle. In the Exodus, in the wilderness wandering, what was the purpose of the tabernacle? Now, first of all, we could say the tabernacle represented the fact that the Lord rules. Now, where do we get that? Well, the Ark of the Covenant was his throne. Scripture tells us that was his throne room. And you also had Aaron the high priest Rod housed in the ark. God ruled through his spiritual leaders. So the ark of the covenant represented the fact that God is a ruling God. Secondly, he is a revealing God. Where do we get that from? Well, the law was housed in the ark of the covenant. And that law was the revelation of God for his people. Third, the tabernacle represented the fact that God resources his people. In other words, there was manna, a jar of manna in the ark. And that manna represented the fact that God would be their provision in their wilderness. No matter what the wilderness was, no matter how difficult it was, he would provide for them grace upon grace. Fourthly, the tabernacle represented the fact that God reconciles. Where do we get that from? Well, on that mercy seat in the, in the Holy of Holies, once a year, blood would be poured out on that mercy seat, propitiating the wrath of God for his people so that they could have relationship with him, which signaled the fact that God is a residing God. He resides with his people. But it came through reconciliation. And the tabernacle was given, keep this in mind, for Israel's wilderness wandering years. That was the purpose of the tabernacle. It was placed at the center of Israel's camp, Numbers 21. And John says, in the incarnation, the first advent, the first appearing, what we celebrate at Christmas, 
we see all of these realities in the Son of God. In the Son of God, we understand that God rules through, the, through His King, Jesus. In the Son of God, we understand He is a revealing God. If you've seen the, uh, the Son, you've seen the Father. In the Son of God, we realize He is a God who resources us, grace upon grace. In the Son of God, we see that He reconciles sinners to Himself through repentance and faith so that He might be with us, so that He might reside with us. And He is to be the center of our encampment as He was with Israel. Of course, there's one distinction. The Christ, the Son of God, our greater tabernacle, is our inheritance. And, and it's because of this. And I want to close here with something unique. Um, we're going to partake of the table here in just a moment. But before we do, I would like us to sing a cappella. Now, I've instructed them to turn down my mic. Uh, But I want us to sing together a song that was written by Charles Wesley and his good friend, George Whitfield. At least one verse of this song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, that I believe encapsulates all that this passage communicates to us today. God in flesh, the, the Godhead see. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.